Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcasts.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcasts.com slash Paracast. And now... On with the show. Terry, on your website, The Missing Times, uh, the subtitle is News, Media Complicity, and the UFO Cover-Up. We're wondering, how is it that you became involved in even looking at this topic in uh, what appears to be a fairly scientific and objective method? Well, it grows out of my my interests and my academic interests primarily. I was originally a biology student at the University of Minnesota back in uh, the late 60s, early 70s. And I was very interested in everything related to the origin of life and the search for extraterrestrial life and so on. And it seemed to me that um, the UFO evidence was certainly relevant to the search for for non-human intelligence. If you had to go looking for a more advanced form of intelligence, you'd have to look at things which uh, sort of uh, appeared magical or very mystifying because, as Arthur C. Clarke said, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So I was curious about why there was a lot of resistance among the scientific community to uh, taking a serious look at the UFO data. And uh, some years later, after I got a, um, a master's degree, or I was working on my master's degree in journalism, I kind of revisited the UFO topic, and I wrote a few papers about it and about the way it was covered or not covered in the newspapers. And uh, so the book kind of grew out of those two uh, those two academic pursuits, I guess you could say. Now, when you look at coverage of UFOs in the media, are we looking to a conspiratorial reason why it's not getting fair coverage or just because they don't take it seriously? Well, it's really a little of both, actually. Uh, there are people who are definitely trying to manage the news media. Uh, if you go back to World War One and study the, the relationship between the, the news organizations and the federal government, there has been for almost 100 years now a working, a working relationship between the, the media, particularly the Pentagon and the military, and the big news organizations to, to basically manage how the American public sees world events. And in wartime, the objective is generally to get the public behind the war. Um, so they use uh, censorship and propaganda to do that. Now, the UFO topic is similar in that beginning in the, well, probably beginning in World War II and then certainly after World War II, a lot of these UFO sightings and flying saucer sightings were taking place near uh, military installations, near uh, nuclear weapons development facilities such as Los Alamos, White Sands, and so on. So it raised a lot of national security issues, and um, there was quite a lot of concern in the early 50s that the the world was being invaded from outer space. In fact, at one point, President President Eisenhower actually made a, a statement carried on the front page of the New York Times denying that the world was being invaded by flying saucers from outer space. So it was a big deal at the time, and it's it's not surprising that the uh, Pentagon and the CIA would would begin to use their traditional censorship and propaganda tools to to kind of torque down on the subject and manage how the public was perceiving it. I can understand that maybe in the 50s, maybe in the 40s, during the Cold War. But right now we have this polarized media where we have large corporations control the press. We have the liberal media, the conservative media, whatever, 
And I can't imagine Rahm Emanuel of the White House calling Roger Ailes of Fox News and saying, hey, play down the UFOs, please. Right. And I think what's happened, uh, uh, let me quote a a remark by uh, a journalism professor named um, William Dorman, who is a professor of journalism and vice president of the Department of Journalism at California State University. He wrote about uh, the relationship between the media and the government as it's evolved over time. And he said, what has taken shape 40 years after Hiroshima can best be described as a journalism of deference to the national security state. The free marketplace of ideas, if it ever existed, has given way to an arena of limited popular discourse whose parameters are set in the national interest as defined by official Washington. So basically what he's saying there is that the the media institutions, the big corporations, have virtually become an arm of the government, or to put it another way, the the government has become an arm of the media. I mean, they're Mm. both equally powerful. They've grown together. And this really happened in a big way in World War II because World War II was a total war effort. The, The media just virtually abandoned any pretense of objective reporting and became fully engaged with censoring the news and creating and disseminating propaganda. This was a big operation, and it employed most of the leading journalists and and uh, corporate executives at the time. So after World War II was over, we, we entered the Cold War, and this, this state of mind where the, the, the media and the government were working together to to address whatever crises arose uh, persisted, and it just became institutionalized. So I think we have a situation today where the media very, very rarely challenged the government in any any serious way over major issues, and I think the events of 9-11 are a good example of that. There's the CBC here in Canada just did a, a television documentary about the 9-11 truth movement. Well, you'd never see something like that in the U.S. It just doesn't happen because uh, if you're involved in something that challenges the official story in that in such a profound way, uh, you're just basically persona non grata. Now, when you talk about the media, Terry, obviously, if you're looking at um, the evolution of this from, let's say, the 40s, in the work that you're doing, you're differentiating, we would assume, between um, you know, today, when people think of the media, they primarily think of, well, today, today, they think of television and the Internet. Of course, back in the 40s, what we're primarily talking about is the print media and radio. And then you've got the rise of, uh, you know, during the 40s and the 50s, the movie screen as a new form of media. And, and we've talked about this on the show recently, in fact, the idea that certainly in the 50s, in most motion picture portrayals of the UFO or alien topic, uh, usually things were drawn to an extreme where, you know, you have basically this very sort of a black and white kind of a, they're here to invade the earth. Um, and you've got this kind of hysteria worked up, which, uh, you know, in the middle of that comes uh, the day the earth stood still in 1951, if I'm not wrong, which actually had a decidedly different tone. Than, than the rest of the movies that were coming out at the time. How did the, the mass media, let's say in the 50s, affect the uh, public perception of this topic? And how has that evolved over time? I mean, if we go to the 70s, we have Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And then the same Spielberg who did that in the 70s, then you know, 20-some-odd years later, does a, a different, a new rendition of War of the Worlds that's incredibly brutal. 
um, in terms of it being a very harsh, really kind of a, a, a wild-looking movie, but in sort of diametric opposition to what he portrays in Close Encounters of a Third Kind. And you have some number of people who look at this topic saying, oh, gee, who's Spielberg on the take from now? Um, not that we buy into that. I think G and I probably understand that Spielberg is a businessman and a movie maker. You know, we don't necessarily think that he's really tied into any kind of conspiracy situation regarding this. But talk to us a little bit about the evolution of media over the past, let's say, 60 years and how this topic has tracked in that time frame. Okay, well, uh, there's a number of questions there that I, I right. need to address, I guess. Um, one is that uh, one point I'd like to make is that my my book focuses primarily on what purports to be serious news coverage. In other words, I don't deal very much with the entertainment industry. Uh, it is a fact historically, though, that the entertainment industry has played a big role in all government propaganda operations. Uh, Walt Disney produced a lot of propaganda films during World War II, for example. But uh, to get back to the media, or what, what I call the news media, that's really the focus of my book. If you look at UFO coverage in kind of an objective or analytical way, what you see is there's two views of reality that the news media in the U.S. portray. And one is the picture you get from reading the small town newspapers, that what people you know at the grassroots are experiencing and reporting. Those newspapers tend to be, and newspapers, radio, and TV tend to be very factual and pretty much professional in the way they report the UFO topic. But as you go up the chain of hierarchy to the national level, the NBCs, the CBSs, the NPR, and so on, those uh, publications seldom, if ever, report on the UFO topic. And when they do report on the UFO topic, it is in a rather ridiculing tone. I want so to that- interrupt here just one second, Terry. The thing about local media, especially small stations, small radio stations, also small newspapers, tend to be owned by local companies, small businesses, whereas the larger you get, the more they're owned by these huge conglomerates. That's exactly right. And, of course, the trend has been over the past uh, 40-some years to consolidate control of the big news organizations under five or six very large corporations. And in some cases, those corporations are uh, heavily involved in the weapons industry or or the war industry, and so they have an, a commercial interest in uh, going along with this propaganda approach to the media. They're they're trying to manipulate the public, win support for the Iraq War, and so on. So you know they're less as you go down the chain to the to the local uh, local media, the grassroots media. They're much less inclined to do that because they're, they are distinct. There are separate organizations and they simply, you know, they're reporting on what local people are seeing and hearing and so on. So you get these two pictures of, of uh, reality, the folk, what I call folk reality, which is the view of, of, of what ordinary people experience and official reality, which is a reflection of what official Washington wants people to think about things. So that's what I, found interesting in writing my book is why should there be this rather remarkable divergence between folk reality and official reality. And so to explain how that came about, I actually spent a couple chapters reviewing the history of propaganda and censorship in the U.S. A lot of people don't think uh, the U.S. government engages in this sort of thing. They think it's something that 
you know, communist countries do or something like that. But in fact, there's almost a hundred years of very detailed history on on uh, this relationship between the government and the media, the big media companies, particularly, and how it's evolved over time. So that's really important to understand the whole UFO topic because the UFO topic does have national security implications and therefore uh, these organizations like the CIA and, and, and the Pentagon come into play in, turn, you know, in determining how, how the uh, media portrays them. Uh, I was just going to get back to the, the news or the, uh, the movie business. That's, that's kind of beyond the, the scope of my book, but as I say, uh, movies have been historically used as a propaganda tool and you know to try to convince or try to persuade the public to see things in a certain light or, or from a certain point of view uh, i find it interesting that what i consider some of the better the two best films entertainment films to deal with the ufo topic which are to deal with extraterrestrial intelligence i should say are 2001 stanley kubrick's film and close encounters and in both films you'll note that the uh the evidence for alien contact was hidden from the public. Uh, you remember in, in 2001, Haywood Floyd goes up to the Clavius moon base and, you know, there's a cover story that there's a, uh, some kind of a plague going on and that's why the Russians aren't allowed entry into the base and so on. All that, of course, is to cover up the fact that they've discovered uh, physical contact for, for an advanced intelligence. And in Close Encounters, you see the same thing, where they use psychological warfare, basically, to hide the fact that there's this rendezvous taking place at Devil's Tower. You know, they drive everybody out with the story that there's a there's a uh, nerve gas, I, I believe it is, uh, leaking from tanks and so on. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I think those, those two films are fairly sophisticated in the way they portray the social reaction to extraterrestrial contact. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is James Carrion, International Director of the Mutual UFO Network. You are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietting. We have Terry Hansen. He's author of a book called The Missing Times. 
news media complicity in the UFO cover-up? And, of course, one of the logical questions we'd like to ask the PowerCast is, all right, maybe there is censorship involved here. Maybe the press is being brought in lockstep to convey certain information. How do we prove it? Okay, well, that's a very good question. It is difficult to prove censorship because it often takes place in a very clandestine way, but there are some pretty good examples that I can cite here. We all know, or at least uh, those who study the UFO topic know about something called the Robertson Panel. Um, As you know, probably know, the CIA was created in 1947 with the National Security Act. And one of the things that the CIA was assigned to do was to create and disseminate propaganda. That was a huge part of their their budget. Not many people know that, but if you go back and and read about the the creation of the CIA in the, in the congressional record and sources like that. Propaganda was a big, a big part of the CIA's job from the beginning. Now, in 1953, in the wake of an intense wave of flying saucer, saucer sightings across the U.S., uh, the CIA uh, organized something called the Robertson Panel. It's named after a man named uh, Dr. H.P. Robertson, who was a very well-connected uh, physicist and um, had been a scientific intelligence officer during World War II and had been involved with monitoring UFO activity in during the war years. So he recommended that there be a kind of uh, media program of training and debunking, as they called it. And basically what they wanted to do was eliminate uh, UFO coverage from the newspapers and, and the news media generally. Not, short, or not long after that, uh, there was a meeting between uh, Coral Lorenzen of APRO, an early UFO research, civilian UFO research group, and uh, Air Force Lieutenant Robert Olson of the Air Technical Intelligence Command. And he told Coral Lorenzen, this is June 12, 1953, quote, we're going to try to keep uh, these flying saucer stories out of the newspapers. So the word had evidently gone out from you know, the, the CIA's Robertson panel on out to the various branches of the military that the name of the game was to try to suppress coverage of the, of the UFO topic as much as possible. Now, let me give you another example. Um, a lot of the UFO reports in the 1950s, the really spectacular reports, came from commercial airline pilots. If you go back and read the newspapers of that period, you'll find quite a few of these. It was a big problem for the for the government because they they obviously had no explanation as to what was going on, and they were quite concerned about the public reaction to these stories. Um, it was reported by a military source in 1954 that airline pilots were seeing or reporting five to ten flying saucers per night. Think about that. That's an amazing number of reports for every night of the every night of the year. And so uh, it was an astonishing situation and that's one of the reasons why I think Eisenhower tried to reassure the public by by saying that uh, the world was not being invaded because in fact it certainly looked like we were being invaded. Now, what do they do about this? Well, first of all, they made flying saucer reports a, a, an intelligence matter under something called JNAP 146, Joint Army, Navy, Air Force Publication 146. And basically what they told the airline pilots was, if you see a flying saucer, you have to report it to the intelligence uh, people. And at that point, it becomes a secret matter under the Espionage Act, and you can no longer talk about it to the media. This is something, by the way, that the late Major Donald Kehoe often mentioned in his books. Yeah, I'm I'm sure he did. 
Now, um, there was actually um, a reaction against this censorship by airline pilots, and it was reported in a newspaper called the Newark Star-Ledger for December 22, 1958. It was an article by John Lester. And basically what Lester said was that there were about 200 or 250 airline pilots signed a petition uh, protesting the fact that the U.S. military was trying to suppress their sightings of flying saucers. And it was later signed by, I think, an additional 200 or so. I think the total number was eventually 450 pilots. But ultimately it came down to, do you want to keep your job or, <laughs> or do you want to keep quiet? And so, you know, they, they decided, most of them decided to just go along with it because they wanted to keep their job. They were well paid and, and so on. So those pilot sighting stories pretty much disappeared from the newspapers after the mid-1950s. Occasionally, So that wasn't then censorship, Terry, though. It was more of the government controlling the pilots through this directive, but it still appeared in the Star-Ledger, so they didn't censor that. Well, that's preemptive censorship, Gene. I mean, uh, you're 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 not censoring the information. You know, it, it, you're it's not preemptive censorship. censorship by the government, but right. not preemptive censorship to stop the Star Ledger from publishing that information. Right, but um, the the effect is really the same. I mean, it, no matter how you censor information, if you're suppressing it somehow, that is censorship. If you're taking measures sure. to suppress information from the media and from the general public. That is censorship. You know, I mean, the fact, the, the ultimate uh, goal or the ultimate effect is the same. Is that regulation, JANAP 146, is that still in effect today, or is there some successor or equivalent to it? Well, I, I think it is still in effect, I believe. And you'll note that whenever a pilot, on those rare, occasion, rare occasions where pilots do make a public UFO report, uh, they're usually... Uh, they usually suffer for it career-wise. So I, I have to believe that there's still a variety of methods that are being used to keep these stories out of general circulation. Now, Terry, is this true for the, for the entire world, or have you focused specifically on the United States? I'm focusing specifically on the United States. No, it isn't true, and that's another, another uh, supporting bit of evidence that there is censorship going on in the U.S. You probably know that uh, maybe a decade or so ago there was a huge flap of UFO activity in Mexico. Absolutely, you know, Mexico that, City flap. We've talked about it quite a bit on the show, absolutely. Okay, well, that, that was a big story in Mexico, as you probably know. There were many stories about it in the newspapers. It was a big story on television. I actually know a scientist who went to Mexico City and, and saw uh, a flying saucer. <laughs> and so these were this was a big deal. But yet the news virtually stopped at the U.S. border. How can you explain that if we have a free press? I mean, you know, if Tiger Woods cheats on his wife, it's it's an instant story all across the country. But if there's a massive wave of flying saucer activity right across the U.S. border and there's nothing on it in the, in the media, how do you account for that if there isn't some mechanism in place? Now, a lot of newspapers depend on the wire services for information. And the New York Times published an article a while back, let's see if I can find the exact date of the article. It's on my website, but uh, basically it said that oh, it was March March 24th, 2001. The New York Times published an article saying that in the 60s, during the um, Bay of Pigs era, 
the CIA had a working relationship with the AP and UPI wire services that allowed them to put propaganda stories directly on to the AP and UPI wires. <laughs> so, you know, if they have that kind of relationship, it's not so difficult to imagine that they could also prevent a story from moving on the wire. And this brings me to another example. Um, during the uh, University of Colorado Condon Commission, which was in the 1960s, 1967, there was this ongoing or this uh, this quote-unquote investigation carried out under the supervision of Condon, who was a physicist. And uh, at the time, there were some peculiar things happening, and there was a reporter named R. Roger Harkins who worked for the Boulder Daily Camera, and he was covering the Condon Commission and all the shenanigans that were happening. And he was rather suspicious about the whole thing and suspected that the CIA was kind of stage managing the whole operation. So he thought, well, maybe we can do a test to see whether this is actually happening. He did an interview with uh, uh, Jim Lorenzen, again, of APRO, and Lorenzen purposely gave a rationale why the CIA would have to be interested in the UFO topic and and so on. So Harkins wrote this interview up. Now remember he had been requested to do this story by the AP office, so he's just responding to a to a request. So he wrote the story up, he filed the story with the AP and he went back to his office to see whether the story would go back you know, would go out over the wire. And of course the story was designed to implicate the CIA in the UFO cover up. Well Lo and behold, the story never appeared. So Harkins' take on that was, well, somebody in the AP, AP wire service office is intercepting these stories that they, you know, the kind of stories that they don't want going out. And I think that's that's got to be going on because, you know, like in the, the major story that I addressed in my book was uh, the UFO overflights over the missile silos in Montana in 1975. Uh, this story was very well known throughout the West. Um, there were many, many articles about this in the in the newspapers in Montana, all across the state. So it wasn't a big secret. Now, how can you explain that, or how can you account for the fact that even though this was a big story with tremendous implications, the story virtually stopped in Montana. It did not travel out over the wire, over stringers through other you know other media um, conduits that normally would be in place very hard to explain that. Well, it, it almost sounds like it's one of those situations where because it involves uh, nuclear issues, we know that um, in covering this specific topic on the show before, when we've had Nick Pope on, um, he'll talk freely until you hit the term nuclear. And right. then he basically freezes up. He says, I can't go anywhere near that. And And so it seems like certainly, you know, after the fact we find out about the Malmstrom case in 1967, uh, and, and actually on the Paracast, we broke another story from someone who had uh, been involved in an episode at Malmstrom in 1966, a year before the 67 episode, where they witnessed a craft come in over an empty silo. Um, it seems like, you know, when you talk about the nuclear issue, it's kind of like what happened during the first Gulf War. Uh, I'll never forget Norman Schwarzkopf is doing a uh, is doing a, a, a press conference, and somebody asks him about the nuclear submarines off the coast of Iraq, and he says, "Submarines? We don't talk about submarines." And that was it. <laughs> he just yeah. like stopped it right there. So, does maybe in in terms of um, these silo flyovers, do you think that the nuclear issue has anything to do with that? Yeah. Well, I, I agree. And- 
and actually, since I wrote my book, there's another book that's come out. And I'm sure you know about uh, Robert Hastings' book, UFOs and Nukes. Absolutely. And it's, it's a good friend of the show. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, it's a very detailed and well-documented account of the many encounters between UFOs and, and nuclear weapons-related facilities of one kind or another. So I don't think there's any question that this has been going on for quite a long time, and it's not something that the military would want the public to know about. And so they have a rationale for keeping that information out of general circulation to the extent that they're able, and they certainly have the means to do so because uh, that's largely what the CIA does. I mean, if you look at their budget, people who are experts on this say that the CIA spends hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, on censorship and propaganda of various kinds. When There really are a broad range of ways of keeping information out of circulation that don't require something like the War Powers Act that we had in World War II. And I list those in my book. There's, you know, one, one method is what's called censorship at source, which is where you simply order military personnel not to talk. And that's, there's many, many, many documented examples of that uh, down through the years. There are high-level contacts with publishers and media owners. You can call people up and either cajole them or, or threaten them into not publishing. Um, you can recruit journalists or media executives. Um, you can monitor and intercept uh, news reports on the wire services. I talked about that. Uh, there's lifetime secrecy agreements that people sign when they're involved in very classified work that keeps information out of, out of circulation. It's known that UFO organizations have been spied upon by the national security people. Um, that's what the Robertson panel recommended, by the way. There's been instances of theft or confiscation of evidence, um, sabotage, character assassination, harassment, incarceration, and possibly assassination. Ooh, I'm going to have to ask you about that in a second. Hey, neighbors, the old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the podcast. have Terry Hansen, author of The Missing Times, and we're exploring the UFO cover-up. And you mentioned assassination, but I just wanted to focus on one other thing before we go into that possibility or that frightening prospect. We had a UFO abductee on our previous show named Doug, and he mentioned 
a pretty elaborate UFO sighting where they took photographs. And this is in the days they had actual roll film. And that roll of film disappeared. No one found it. You brought it to the developing lab. The roll was history. Right. Right. Well, I, I once saw a lecture by Dr. J. Allen Hayek, and he went on for approximately half an hour with photograph after photograph after photograph of flying saucers and various anomalous objects that he had collected over his years researching the topic. This was in the days before Photoshop and digital photography and all that. You know, these a number of these photographs have been carefully analyzed and they've they've stood up very well. So, but you don't hear about that, do you? I mean, if you you know if if, uh, if you see a program on the media, they always try to stress the fact that there's no evidence, there's no physical evidence. Well, it's not true. There's lots. Well, of yeah, that, that's not true. And and certainly in terms of photographic evidence, uh, probably the best photographic evidence we have comes from the era prior to digital manipulation tools, the McMinnville photos yeah. being, you know, right. obvious example, the Trindade photos from Brazil, another great example. I mean, there, there are some very compelling pieces of evidence to support uh, the idea that there is something anomalous. But Terry, you mentioned before something about potentially people being killed right. in this process. That, that's obviously a fairly controversial statement. Could you, could well, you it up? is. And I, I don't... Um I don't know whether this, there's, it's very difficult to prove uh, why someone dies. For example, the death of James Forrestal is a very controversial topic because many people at the time believed that he was, he didn't just jump out of the window and from the hospital room that he was being kept in, that he may have been pushed or killed in some fashion. Ed Ruppelt, who was Project Blue Book uh, director, uh, wrote some very revealing, or a very revealing book about the UFO topic in the 50s. Uh, died at a very young age. Uh, I think he was 39 and he had a heart attack. Now, could you say that was a murder? Well, no, probably not. There's not enough evidence there. But we do know uh, from the Roswell example that a lot of the witnesses were told in no uncertain terms, if you talk about this, not only will we kill you, we'll kill your family. And uh, this has been written up in Witness to Roswell by Thomas Carey and Don Schmidt. So you know, back they, to Ruppelt for a second. You know that there was a second edition of the report on unidentified flying objects where he added a couple of chapters basically recanting the yeah. impression that he believed in UFOs. And according right. to Major Donald Kehoe, who actually wrote some of this up in one of his books, Ruppelt was being very, very deeply pressured. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at that. Yeah, I mean, we do know that there people have frequently been threatened or, you know, various threatening remarks have been made to UFO witnesses over the years, all variety of witnesses from from the military to civilians. So have those threats been carried out? Very hard to prove that, you know, but uh, it's a possibility, and we certainly know that people die under mysterious circumstances. You probably know about the case of David Kelly in, in uh, Britain. He was a scientist oh, yeah. who was causing problems for the administration there over evidence for uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction and various other things. Oh, yes. And he died in very, very unusual circumstances. That's being a challenge now in Britain by a number of other physicians who say that uh, he was, you know, he didn't die of suicide. So these things happen. You have to be realistic about it. If they're serious about keeping information out of circulation, they won't stop at anything. Well, Terry, this begs a question that I'm sure everybody who's listening to this right now probably has on their minds. I mean, what do you think 
uh, is being withheld to the extent where people's lives would be on the line. I mean, if, if we if let's we, let's say we go back to Roswell, um, and we go back to the idea that people who were uh, supposedly witnesses to certain aspects of what was going on after the fact were told by the military, if you say anything, we'll kill you. Well, what would what do you think would motivate the military to make those kinds of threats? I mean. Because when you talked about, you know, CIA and disinformation uh, uh, intersection with this whole topic, I mean, we have to kind of, at that point, you sort of have to differentiate between the idea of using the UFO topic as a cover to, let's say, play around with disinformation techniques and see how they work versus an actual cover-up of some sort of information that's being held, kept secret. What do you think would be the nature of such information that people's lives would be threatened well, I think it probably comes back to the general uh, desire of various powerful people and institutions to maintain the status quo. I, I personally believe that Roswell was an alien craft. I mean, that's where I come down on that. I think the evidence is very strong that that was the case. So if you think about this for a minute, uh, from the standpoint of, say, the military-industrial complex, how valuable would it be to have an alien artifact that might be thousands of years in advance of our own technology, that would completely upset the balance of power. And back in the 1950s particularly, you know, if you're paranoid about the Russians overtaking us or something like that, this would be of tremendous importance. So that alone, I think, is, is, would be one reason why the military would want to take control of that technology. Another aspect of it is just from the economic or commercial point of view, if you had technology that you know, was was quite far in advance of anything else on Earth, you would be in a position basically to dictate for hundreds of years into the future the direction of technological evolution. And you'd also be able to capitalize on that to the tune of untold hundreds of billions of dollars in profits. There are a lot of rumors, and I think this, in uh, Witness to Roswell, they talked about this, uh, the Inconel, or the, the memory metal, you remember that? Right, sure. Um, there's evidence that our research into the use of tongue uh, of titanium as an aerospace material had its roots in the Roswell crash. A uh, very interesting idea and seems reasonably well supported. So who knows what other things might have come out of Roswell. Uh, Corso claimed, and I know a lot of people are very skeptical of Corso, but he claimed that the Roswell uh, wreckage had uh, an impact on the development of fiber optics and transistors and other things. Um, there's another source that made a similar statement uh, that was Robert Sarbacher, and he said that you know I'm sure our people looked at these things very closely, and so there was there there clearly was a very deep, highly classified research and development program that grew out of the Roswell crash and probably other crashes that have taken place to exploit these technologies both for the military as well as for private commercial interests. Now, you know, that's not something that you just want to have out there in the open in the open domain because then our enemies or rival companies and so on would would have that information too. So it would be important for them to sequester that information so that they could use it to their own advantage. Now there may be other concerns as well, um, psychological impact of of extraterrestrial contact. That was you know that was a central feature of the movie 2001 that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, it was a stu uh, the uh, topic of a Battelle Memorial report, which claimed that you know our civilization could collapse if uh, extraterrestrial and advanced society uh, became publicly known to the American public or 
you know, the world public. So there are lots of different concerns like that, and there may be others that we don't even know about. Well, you know, when we talk about recovered technology, when you bring this up, and we've, we've spoken about this topic quite a bit on the Paracast, leaving the veracity of Corso out of the picture for a minute, because the, the whole question about Corso brings up problems with Bill Burns, who co-wrote the book with him, and sure. uh, there's a whole series of problems that arise out of that, but... Putting all that aside for a moment, um, you know, the the history of development of technology is something that's somewhat well known. Um, and when you look at the development of things like transistors or uh, fiber optics or night vision, it, it's a fairly well documented research and development effort that it, it sort of seems to preclude the instant sort of a jump that you would get if you all of a sudden came into the possession of a technology. That was very far in advance of anything we have. And, and, and the second part of that problem that, that Gene and I have talked about quite a bit on the show, um, because both of our backgrounds are in, are in covering technology, technology journalism, um, and I've dubbed myself a technologist, which has freaked some people out. But that's, that's what I am. I'm really, all my life, I've just been involved in, in, in technology of, of various types. What, you, you end up with this conundrum where if, let's say, you get a hold of a chunk of technology that's thousands of years in advance or, or tens of thousands of years of years in advance of what we have, the question becomes, would we even be able to figure out how to decipher what we were looking at? Oh, absolutely. Um, and we've played this game on the show many times with the description of, you take a laptop computer back 100 years, hand it to the most brilliant scientists and say, here, figure this out. Sure. Uh, they be interesting to watch, it, it, you know, just even see them try to figure out the power supply. You bet. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, I've got one of these little iPod touches. You can hold it in the palm of your hand and access the world's knowledge. You know, I mean, it's just amazing. Just, just stop also, you. The part of it that's been digitized, which is not the majority of the right. world's knowledge. Just sure. Let's just draw that no, line but, of sand. Very important. All right, please go ahead. But my, my point is, though, that, I mean, I, I'm also very interested in technology. I was a ham radio operator back in the 60s, and at that time, you know, radios were vacuum tube machines. They were, oh, yeah. you know, had crystal-controlled oscillators and things like that. Very primitive. Now look what we've got. I mean, we've gone from that to the iPod Touch in basically 50 years or so. So that's a tremendous leap of technology. Now, did it all come because of our own efforts, or did we get a few hints about which direction to investigate from the Roswell wreckage. I think it's rather difficult to say because, you know, they may have, have done it in a very sophisticated, uh, clever way where they just sort of decided, well, we'll fund this area of research because that's that looks like something we need to understand in regard to the Roswell wreckage, or we'll fund that area of research. They're, they're not going to, you know, Make it, they're not going to do it in such a way that you can trace it back to the Roswell wreckage, but that Roswell wreckage might well have provided some directions in which you know which areas to do research. So we can't really say for sure. I don't think whether there has been any impact, and we may have have uh, already be witnessing some uh, benefits from the Roswell wreckage that have come about in rather labyrinthine ways. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown 
Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Before we go on, we have Terry Hansen, author of a book called The Missing Times. But let's look at your side of the fence here, and that is, all right, David and I look at the possibilities of having this reverse engineered technology, and we say, well, there's a clear history of how integrated circuits were developed, night goggles, etc., the stuff that was talked about in the day after Roswell. Sure. But then let's look at the conspiracy theory. What if the historical records of the development of those technologies, what if those things were altered to change the history so they would look to be conventional developments? Because if we're looking at it 40 years later, how do we know? Well, sure. That's exactly right. And there's another aspect to this, and that is the legal aspect. If you... If you're a big corporation, you claim to have invented something. Uh, let's say it, it actually came from the Roswell wreckage, but you were given uh, a contract by the Pentagon to develop this into something practical. Now, you can claim ownership of that technology through the patent and trademark process. As long as nobody knows where it came from, it looks like an original investment. So there's a there's a strong incentive there to create a paper trail that makes it look like you invented it or you did the research, whereas, in fact, maybe that research wasn't done here. <laughs> maybe it was given to us, or maybe we got a hold of it in some other way. So I think it's a little difficult to be sure about that. I mean, I'm just, I can't prove it, but I, I think you have to keep an open mind about where some of these things come from. I think possibly there are many, many other secrets waiting in the wings that are so revolutionary and so disruptive that, they just can't let them out even today. And I, I'm thinking of a comment that George Knapp heard from someone who, who worked at Area 51. Um, he said, you know, we, we've discovered something that if, if it were let out, it would change everything. So well, think about well, that. Yeah, that's that that's Bob Lazar, and and so no, not just not not just Bob Lazar. Lazar. That that has come from other sources, according to George Knapp. Really? He has he's heard that from other people. So you know they're they're obviously working on something there that they don't want the public to know about. I mean, I've been out there at fifty one, not not in the base, but you know they're pretty serious about keeping people away from whatever they're working on there. It's conceivable that they are actually sitting on things, and, and a number of the people from Lockheed Skunk Works have, have said as much or hinted as much that, that they have technologies that are very far in advance of uh, what's known to the public. My own brother, by the way, worked for Pratt & Whitney Aircraft, and he's told me that he knows things that about jet engines and so on that uh, he can't talk about, that the public doesn't know about, and if they were made public, they would change, uh, they would have a significant impact on air transportation. But they're, they're, not, uh, they're not ready to let those out of the bag yet. Well, not to, not to run that one down then, but uh, jet engines, a technology that seems pretty well understood, 
Yeah. Uh, we see it in action all the time. Was your brother implying that there is some version of a jet engine that is unknown to us that has characteristics that would shock us? Is that the implication? Well, it might not shock you, but it would it would certainly change it would change air travel. I think let's let's put it that way. You know, he worked on engines that were you know multi Mach engines, Mach seven, Mach eight, very mm-hmm. high speed engines. So. They have technology that's pretty far advanced, and they, they don't just—they don't want the civilian sector to have it because if the civilian sector had it, then other militaries would have it. And that's really primarily why it's kept classified. But you know, as I—I'm I, sure you're aware of quotes from um, was Ben Ben, ben Mental, Rich, ben, yeah, Ben Rich, and, and people yeah. like that. And I've talked to people who knew Ben Rich, and they—they they say the same thing that Ben Rich told them that. They have things that are 50 years beyond anything you can even imagine. And uh, the guy that I talked to about this said, and I, I have a pretty good imagination. <laughs> so are they just blowing smoke? I don't know. This, you know, There's an interesting example of all of this in, in the computer industry. Yeah. Um, many, and, and where we've got a situation where uh, in chip development, we've definitely hit a bit of a wall. You know, we used to see these tremendous increases in CPU uh, processors and processor speed. Um, and about five years ago, those tremendous increases essentially just stopped. And what we saw was a transition to multi-core processors where basically it was like, we can't make the individual processor faster. We can just load, we can miniaturize them so we have more of them to draw on in a multiprocessor environment, assuming the software behaves properly. But um, I, can, I can share this with, with our audience and with you just as an insight to that. Many, many years ago, um, there was a, 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 an extended family member of mine who was in the military who uh, knew of my interest in computer technology. Now, this is something, a lifelong thing I've had. Mm-hmm. And um, this person said to me, uh, said something to me that has stayed with me forever. I've actually written a bunch on this topic, and I know that there's, and, and I'll just say what the words are, holographic memory core. Mm-hmm. This person said to me, look, there are computing technologies that go beyond what you know to be you know, the standard von Neumann architecture computer. Um, there's the concept of a holographic memory core. And I'm like, what the hell is that? He said, imagine a computer where there's no differentiation between processor and memory that they're one and the same. And where basically you don't have bus limitations, bus limitations are essentially gone. Now this is, I was told this, I want to tell you, this is like 20 years ago, maybe maybe even longer ago than 20, but it was about 20, about 20, 25 years ago I was told this. Mm -hmm. And it kind of rocked my brain. I was like, what? And uh, if one extrapolates from that, um, then one has to believe if I was told that 20, 25 years ago, and the way he was representing it was, this was a technology they were kind of working on but didn't have quite have there yet. Right. If we extrapolate from that and think that now, okay, maybe there is a fully optical computer somewhere in a bunker underground that has processing power that we can't even imagine, let's just assume for a moment that were, that, that was a true statement. Uh, one would then perhaps legitimately ask the question, well, if we have technology like that, then why is it sitting underground somewhere? Why isn't it being deployed? If we have, uh, uh, let's say, craft that have amazing abilities, how come they haven't been deployed? You know, and, 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 yeah. Right? I mean, how come we haven't seen any of this? 
Well, one I think one answer to that is that there's something called the Invention Secrecy Act of 1951. Are you familiar with that? Well, no. basically what that is, there, there's a, there is a law, it's called the Invention Secrecy Act of 1951. If you apply for a patent, it has to go through a patent review, and it has to be examined by uh, representatives from the DOD, from NASA, and from the Department of Energy. And if, if in their judgment what you have invented has national security implications, depending on how they define that, and they never tell you, of course, uh -huh. they can basically confiscate your idea. And that has been exercised many, many, many times over the years. So people have invented things that in the judgment of these faceless government bureaucrats has some national security implication, and they just basically take your idea. Any uh, examples yeah. specifically where, the, where this may it's have like been done? Domain, or is it basically right? saying, well, we don't know because it's a secret? They don't tell you why they do it. They just say it's a national security problem, therefore, you know, we're not going to grant you a patent or we're, we'll, we're confiscating your idea. I don't know exactly how it works, but but there is a law like that. Uh, I read an article about this in uh, uh, Federation of American Scientists article, I think. Uh, at any rate, there is there is a law like that. You can look it up and t or talk to a, a patent attorney. They would probably know all about it. Well, so, so basically, then, what you're, the picture you're drawing here, Terry, is that our free society is in no way free, basically. Well, it's it's becoming less and less free over time, I'd say. Uh, you know, I mean, after World War II, science began to be viewed in a very different light by politicians and policymakers. Uh, the, the atomic bomb demonstrated that science was capable of delivering some rather terrifying technologies. And I think at that point, things began to change. A lot of new laws were created to ensure that certain kinds of ideas, certain kinds of technologies would be kept under wraps uh, for as long as they wanted to do that. Uh, there's a very good book called um, Secret Science, Federal Control of American Science and Technology. I, I recommend that as a real good overview of how this all evolved over the past 50 years because, no, we don't live in a free society anymore. We live in a very tightly controlled society, not only in terms of the media, uh, which is what I focus on in my book, but also in in terms of science and technology, there are a lot of, you know, the most science and technology research is carried out by the Pentagon, and the Pentagon has a very different agenda from, you know, the the private sector or the commercial sector. No, I I, I think. Uh, Freedom has been torqued down on quite a bit over the past uh, few decades. Is it mostly because of the UFO phenomenon, or are there other things, other areas where we're seeing this happen? Well, I think the UFO, I think it's it's traceable back to the UFO phenomenon to a large degree. It, it's also part of the atomic, uh, the nuclear weapons uh, problem that developed, you know, with, with nuclear proliferation and things like that. But of course, UFOs are tied in with the the atomic development as well. There's, there's an obvious kind of interrelationship between UFOs and nuclear nuclear energy. And, you know, you only need to read um, uh, Robert Hastings' book to see just how clear that is. So um, I think there are all kinds of ramifications that kind of spin out from there. Um, for You know, for example, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that uh, the Air Force was trying to shoot down flying saucers in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe Roswell didn't crash. Maybe it was shot down. Who knows? I don't know. So 
that's a whole other can of worms. I mean, then you, you know, you've got the government that's unilaterally declaring war on other technological civilizations in space. I mean, that's without telling the public about it. You know, shouldn't there be some discussion about this? That's a pretty incredible thing. No, it also seems like an incredible act of, of futility. Uh, well, exactly. <laughs> because it's, yeah, how, it's, do you, uh, how do you fight something that can outmaneuver anything we have? Well, exactly. I mean, why? Yeah. I mean, you have to wonder at the intelligence of some of these military generals that they would they would just undertake something like that without considering uh, the consequences of what they're doing. Well, at that you point, aren't they just, I mean, there's an old saying that the best general is not the general that makes the right decision. The best general is the general that makes a decision under pressure, any decision that keeps things moving forward. Right. Um, so, you know, if you look at the situation, for example, what was going on, let's say, in the late 40s, early 50s, where we come off the Second World War and all of the implications of that on a global scale, now all of a sudden there are these things that are in the sky that, outmaneuver anything that we have. I mean, see, at that point, certainly one can assume that the Air Force was basically just playing the role of protector of the skies and and were enforcing, to, to the extent that they thought they could, restrictions over our airspace where yeah. maybe ultimately they figured that, no, we can't outfly these things. So, you know, at that point, do you then think that there was a decision to sort of kind of take sort of a, of a polar attitude towards this? Well, if we can't if we can't shoot these things down, we'll just make believe they don't exist. <laughs> yeah, well, that seems, that seems almost be, psychotic. That seems to be what they've what they've done. But you know, once you commit yourself to a deception on that scale, you lay the groundwork for the destruction of your own uh, your own government because it, it just chips away at the at the uh, confidence people have in duly constituted authority when people know you're being lied to. I mean, Area 51 is a great example about that. I, I wrote a paper or an article called The Psychology of Dreamland, just reflecting on this idea that the, you know, the military uh, is lying about the existence of a base that everyone knows about, and yet they go on lying about it. They go on pretending as if it's not there, and everyone can go out and see it and photograph it, and you can see it on Google Earth. And it's just, it's absurd. You know, you wonder who, who's in charge out there. I mean, these people seem to have an IQ of about 50. You know, they're just responding in some sort of mindless, bureaucratic way without thinking through what they're doing. I mean, I, I wonder whether there's anybody in charge in the United States. There's so much compartmentalization. I, just to give you an example, one of the people who read my book was a very high-level uh, nuclear policy analyst for the RAND Corporation. Mm -hmm. And he was in charge of formulating U.S. policy about nuclear weapons, you know, the so-called mutual assured destruction doctrine. And he did not know at the time that these uh, UFO overflights were taking place that that was happening. The Air Force did not see fit to convey that information to the very top-level people making nuclear policy. I find that astonishing. You know, I mean... <laughs> You know, I mean, compartmentalization is being carried to such an extreme that it's a, it's insane. No, that's that's actually, I think you've just uh, created the definition of unbelievable. Yeah, it is. I was astonished to hear that. Or need uh, to know taken to the nth degree and <laughs> taken to the totally irrational. Well, exactly. I mean, if these guys didn't have a need to know, who does? You know? <laughs> so I really have to question whether this whole 
mania for secrecy and compartmentalization hasn't gotten completely out of control to the point where it's become counterproductive. It's threatening, uh, it may be threatening our own existence, you know, as a nation. And as I say, it, it corrodes people's confidence in government when, when you know you're being lied to and yet they go on lying. Is there any confidence in government at all? I don't think we believe anything the government says. Well, if you look at the left. way the mainstream media discusses the subject, at least those areas that they do cover, no one believes it. We're talking to Terry Hansen. The book is called The Missing Times, and he has a website, themissingtimes.com. It's linked to thepowercast.com, so if you forget that, you go to us. We also have a link for the book so you can get more information on it. We will rejoin Terry Hansen and discuss... The UFO cover-up on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietnam. Terry Hansen, author of The Missing Times. The site is themissingtimes.com. And something occurs to me here. We look at the news media today, <laughs> and Edward R. Murrow would have been spinning in his grave to think what has happened to the news media, although maybe he was complicit in some things too. Who knows? But now you have this playing stories for entertainment and you have of course cable news network 24-hour cable news where they have commentators who are not presenting the news but presenting entertainment right. and of course we can say maybe fox news is a big offender of that but then msnbc for its own particular point of view may be doing the same thing the question being here when they present the news as entertainment as the wwf are they serving the government in some way doing that so we don't take the government and what it does seriously so things can go in under the radar and we don't see it? Well, uh, yeah, they probably are. I mean, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, all the polls, public opinion polls, uh, show that the, the credibility is a very serious problem with the the, the traditional media, the newspapers and, and television networks and so on. They're, they're down to, I think, I don't know, 20 or 30 percent of the public thinks uh, what they get over traditional media is credible. So uh, they're sort of being, they're sort of uh, dying out in a way. I mean, I think there, there's something new emerging out of the Internet, and uh, the old media are dying off like the dinosaurs and the, you know, the old parable of the dinosaurs and the mammals. The question is, how will the mammals evolve from here? Will they evolve into something um, better than what we had or worse? And... I, I personally think one of the central problems of the news business is that there's no um, there's no good source of funding for serious investigative journalism right now. Uh, there are some some organizations trying to address this, but they're fairly small and ineffective. And I I have often thought that there should be something like you know. Uh, I call it the journalism conservancy, where you you uh, sort of join this organization and you pay your dues, and in return you get you know you fund people who are doing doing investigative uh, work. But of course, you still run into the problem of 
of propaganda and corruption and all those sorts of things that, that we've seen happen. But uh, somehow we have to come up with another model for funding the news other than just advertising, because I think that has gradually uh, corrupted the whole process. Well, the basically, printed press is almost dead. I mean, my son is a journalism graduate. He graduated in May of 2008. He had done some legitimate work with legitimate news organizations. He worked for Gannett at the Arizona Republic, but there's no hope he'd ever get a full-time job there because they cut back. And this is right. the way it is. People who want to be old-fashioned journalists, there are no jobs to them. But even the broadcast media, they cut back in their news bureaus around the world. So those who really want to do this, where do you go? Yep, it's a very, very serious problem. There's no doubt about it. I think it's something that we're all going to have to give serious thought to if we want to continue living in a democratic society because you cannot have a functioning democratic republic if you don't have uh, reliable, trustworthy information about what's going on. Now, and we can't, however, separate or divorce the United States from the rest of the world. So obviously in your book you focused on what's happening here. That's but right. certainly since there is certainly so much coverage of what goes on elsewhere, what about the rest of the world? Do we have the government of the U.K., for example, since they are such close friends of the U.S., doing the same thing? We know some information is being released, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, for example, Nick Pope will not talk about, especially when he goes nuclear. Right. Well, you know, in fact, the, the U.K., the British Empire uh, was, was the foremost practitioner of, of propaganda up, up until the United States uh, took over its role. Uh, they really taught the U.S. Uh, U.S. military establishment everything they know about propaganda and, and censorship. Uh, if you go back and look at the history of World War II, the U.S. had a relatively uh, unsophisticated and, and rather primitive intelligence apparatus up until World War II, and because of the, the U.S. Uh, joining forces with the British government, a lot of knowledge about this was transferred to the British uh, or to the American intelligence community from from Britain. And uh, in a sense, I think we're all kind of one big empire right now. We're, I call it the Anglo-American Empire because there's a lot of cooperation between the, all the leading uh, English-speaking countries, particularly Canada, U.S., uh, Britain, and and Australia, New Zealand. Well, it seems like we're dealing in a world that is reminiscent of the infamous scene in the movie Network where Ned Beatty takes Peter Finch into Valhalla and explains to him the, the corporate cosmology, as Ch uh, Patty Chayefsky calls it, um, where he tells uh, 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 Howard Beale, it's not a world of, uh, of nations, and it, it's basically uh, the world's a business of multinational corporations. And uh, it's the old line of follow the money, basically. And, and there are some people who would, you know, now might, might yell at me and say, well, that's a conspiracy theory. And the answer is, well, no, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a recognition of reality. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, anybody who wants to understand that, look at the health care crisis in the United States today. And as we're recording this show, because this show is going to air in, in, you know, in a few weeks, um, as we're recording this, basically, the insurance companies are effectively overriding anything in, involving the democratic process. They're just basically trampling right over it. Um, and uh, so ultimately what you have really, and, and Gene, this is I'm kind of like addressing what you were asking before, 
what you've got is a world where you have these multinational corporations who tend to be the media owners no matter where you go. You know, it's 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 one small set of companies that own a majority of the mass media around the globe um, because of the interconnected aspects of communications technology today. And, and, and so you've got a problem where you're trying to fight the money. And I think that if one does a, a historical analysis of any part of human history trying to fight the money, the money always wins, sadly. Yeah, that's, that's quite often the case. I'm afraid to, afraid to acknowledge. Um, yeah, I'm not happy the, about that, Terry. <laughs> no, no, not at all. You know, not well, at I all. think I, I do generally see the Internet as a, a positive thing and that it gives it gives the average person the average joe uh basically his own platform and um you know you can get things if you you can get information out about important developments if you work at it and use the proper methods um you know you can i've published articles on various blogs and things like that that Probably would never have gotten into the, into the newspapers because of the nature of the topic. Right. They just wouldn't wouldn't uh, write about that. So uh, I see it as a, a positive development, but we shouldn't be too uh, complacent about about the situation because uh, there have been some some articles and papers I've written from people in the Pentagon basically saying that we we need to start using the internet uh, in the same way we've been using the mainstream media. I cite an example of that in my book. So, uh, you know, you have things like Wikipedia, for example, that anybody can edit. That sounds okay until you realize that some of the people doing the writing and editing might be working for the, um, you know, the CIA or some other organization like that. Well, it's back to the money. You know, it comes back to who's got the lawyers. Uh, certainly, yeah, who can, Sure, who can make the biggest noise and make the biggest splash? Well, uh, or or who can bring the biggest threat to bear? I mean, when you've got a, an organization like Scientology that uh, is basically using their financial might to go in and to mess around with people, um, uh, and there's been a tremendous outcry over what they've been doing in terms of even the Wikipedia page about them, how they go in and they edit this. This is where you have the, the all of the... Basically, it's democracy in action with all of the... Um, the pratfalls that you're likely to run into where the Internet, everybody can have a voice on the Internet. That's the good part. The bad part, everybody can have a voice on the Internet. Uh, yeah. So you have this situation, and this gets really complicated, uh, guys, when you start to look at, again, we come back to money. You start to look at, for example, Google AdWords and the whole thing about trying to drive traffic to your site, where we where I, I will cite a very specific example here in, in context of the topic we're talking about right now, the UFO topic, where you have this website put up by an Australian self-proclaimed psychic by the name of Michael Cohen, All News Web. And here, we're saying it on here. People, uh, Faracast listeners know about this site because of the fact that for us, it's like if it shows up there, it's probably crap. <laughs> um, but as it turns out, what appears to be the case is that people like Cohen appear to be basically setting up a situation where they're generating click-through dollars. They're basically creating headlines that are completely outrageous or just ridiculous, but that drives a large amount of traffic to their site at 
that basically lets them correct collect revenues from the large amount of click-throughs that are happening on their site. So they keep putting up more and more outrageous stuff, basically just looking to get the eyeballs. That's it. You're not really interested in the nature of the content itself or yeah. the veracity of it. It's just basically put up the sensationalistic site, drive lots of people there, profit, repeat. Well, it's the same right. model that works with cable news. I right. mean, 24-hour cable news, they're not there to give you the news. They are there to generate ratings, and because they have ratings, they get more advertising. They charge each advertiser more dollars. And they yeah. don't care if there's anything true or not true about the information they present. And, and, you know, rel that's probably relatively innocuous as these things go. I mean, you can also have situations where, you know, some new Internet phenomenon uh, comes out of nowhere, and who's really behind it and what's their true objective? I mean, it may not be just making money. They may be, they may have another uh, objective altogether. In my book, I, I talk about the National Enquirer and the fact that for many, many years, as you probably know, the National Enquirer was the only national newspaper to cover the UFO topic. Well, what many people don't know is that it was started by a guy who did a stint in the CIA Psychological Warfare Department before uh, buying the newspaper that became the National Enquirer, and nobody has ever figured out who funded him uh, to do that. Um, so I argue in, in the book that it's very very likely that the, national, the purpose of the National Enquirer, one of the purposes, was not just to make money for Gene Pope, but to to use the paper as a way of discrediting the UFO topic. In other words, if you downplay it in the main media, the New York Times, the newspaper's record, but you play it up in this ridiculous tabloid, it puts a negative spin on the whole topic, which is exactly what the Robertson panel was trying to do or, or said they would try to do. So, you know, a lot of these Internet phenomena may be something like that. They may be behind the scenes being funded by people with, uh, you know, an entirely different agenda than just making money. I, I've been told that Facebook was founded by some of the people that were connected with something called total information awareness. Do you know about that? This is the it whole, was, you know, Gene, we haven't talked about some technology, but that guy Zuckerman, right? The Facebook guy, is his name not Zuckerman? He's like a kid. I've heard some, some commentary about that as well. Um, I don't know. Gene, have you heard anything along? I mean, you've heard of that rumor, right? Oh, I've heard of so many. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days. But the real question is, how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call one 866 596 6134 that number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? 
We have Terry Hansen, author of The Missing Time, which is not about missing time in the sense of UFO abductions, but missing times in the sense of the news media complicity in the UFO cover-up. All right, so maybe let's look at that. These so-called new media moguls, people involved in places like Facebook, people designed to get people to participate. Is this also come some kind of participation of the cover-up? Is it a way to deflect our attention from what's really going on? Well, it's certainly <laughs> possible that that's going on. I mean, uh, you know, the the uh, I think the um, uh, public public relations industry has certainly glommed onto the internet in a big way, and and they're you know they're using it for whatever nefarious purposes they may be getting paid for, and some of those may be political, some of them may be could be related to UFOs. I mean, there's sort of this ongoing battle between um, the people who don't want us to know about flying saucers and so on and, you know, the people who are trying to get the information out. So the, the, the battle has, I think, effectively shifted from uh, the old arena, which is the traditional media, to the new the new media. And it stands to reason that uh, they would they would try to use some of those same methods uh, just to varying degrees adapted to the new the new arena of the, the new media or the Internet. Well, earlier in the show, we were talking about the involvement of the government in UFO investigative organizations. I think, of course, the progenitor of government involvement was NICAP, peopled by, after Major Donald Kehoe took over, the former head of the CIA, other military officials. It seemed like, gee, if we're going to have a military cover-up, they're all here. They're in NICAP. Okay, but... That organization is long ago and far away. Do they play that game in a more subtle fashion now? Is there real infiltration in MUFON and any of the other organizations? Well, I, w I don't know, but I, what we do know is that the Robertson panel specifically said back in 1953 that the UFO groups had to be watched because of their potential impact on public thinking. So my inclination is to think that they're they're still doing that. I don't think things have changed that much, but I can't. I can't prove it. You know, you can't. You can't identify who's working for the CIA because they don't come out and tell you. You know, they're getting paid behind the scenes, or they're working for some front organization, or something like that. You just there's no way to to definitively prove that. Uh, it's rare that we, we can make these connections, but uh, one of the surprising things that happened when I was researching my book was that during the 1960s when all the UFO activity was taking place over the ICBM fields, uh, CBS News came out with a program called UFO's Friend, Foe, or Fantasy, and it was narrated by Walter Cronkite, who, as you know, used to be regarded as a very credible reporter. But uh, it turns out that he was actually working for the CIA because uh, a letter was found from Thornton Page of the Robertson panel basically confirming that uh, he played a behind-the-scenes role in, in uh, writing the script for that program. So, again, you, you know, the long arm of the CIA was reaching out to one of its trusted media assets, which was CBS, in order to put a negative spin on the UFO topic. And um, so these things do happen. There's no doubt about it. So how do you separate the signal from the noise, Terry? Obviously, you've been doing this for a long time, and... You know, we get we get very frustrated in this discussion. You know, how do you how do you just claw away at the junk to get to the to the real core underneath? I mean, what do you what do you do on a personal level to try to separate signal from noise? Well, 
that, that's a real good good question. I could probably talk about it for a couple of hours, but <laughs> well, we can do uh, it actually, for forty minutes, Terry. And go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I, I actually have been writing about this very topic recently. Uh, I'm trying to trying to write another book, but it's kind of slow slow going. But uh, one of the chapters is is totally devoted to that point to you know, that um, that problem of you know what what kind of epistemological rules do we need to develop to make sense of what's happening and um, part of it I think is you have to be open-minded at the same time as you're quite skeptical you know you have to find uh, there's a writer named Robert Anton Wilson he, he used to talk about something called maybe logic <laughs> he said you can never should never really believe in anything you just absolutely have to be in a permanent state of suspended judgment because you know a lot of times things come out that appear initially to be complete nonsense and after you start digging into them you find much to your surprise that uh, there's something to it after all so um you know, you you can't uh, you can't be too quick to judge situations, very especially very complicated situations. Uh, there are people out there trying to uh, pull the wool over your eyes, you know, and they have tremendous resources and they can do some very clever things. In World War One, uh, there was an organization the government set up called the Four Minute Men, and this was a national organization of community leaders that the government paid to go out and give seemingly spontaneous speeches in favor of World War One, in favor of attacking the Kaiser and so on. And this was all very highly orchestrated, but to the average person, uh, you know, he'd go to see a play or a movie or something like that, and some guy would, would stand up and give this impassioned speech, uh, and it seemed like just a spontaneous outpouring of sentiment, but in fact it was a highly organized uh, program that the government had to, to win people over to entering, entering the war. So um, a lot of things that seem spontaneous or just accidental are quite uh, carefully planted. Uh, I think about the 9-11 thing where they found this, they claim that they found this guy's passport, a slightly singed passport of Mohammed Atta, I think it was, lying in the, in the street. Well, you know, how easy it is just to drop something like that in a place where somebody would find it, as you know, and then people would see that and say, aha, here's the evidence, you know, the smoking gun. Uh, so it's rather complicated to uh, to get at the truth of anything really. Uh, definitively, and I think you just have to be very, very skeptical, and yet at the same time very open-minded. It's a weird state of mind. To be very perverse about this, we have now the sponsorship, evidently official sponsorship by the media, certain elements of the media, in new movements like the Tea Party movement, which is possibly manifesting itself in some kind of potential third party. So is that part of the conspiracy, too, that we create these organizations to manipulate the world of politics, to get certain people into office to present their agenda? I mean, this is going beyond just UFOs, obviously. Sure. Well, I think there's always this kind of ongoing jostling for control, you know, among, among the people who, are, who have an agenda of one, one sort or another. It's like the old saying, you know, politician is someone who finds a parade and marches in front of it. Whenever a parade gets organized, there's all kinds of people that come out of the woodwork and, and try to capitalize on that movement for their own objectives. Part of the, the problem that we find with the Paracast and trying to, to, to talk about this topic seriously, Terry, is that you come to understand, and, and this, again, you know, kind of this will intersect back with the Internet, um, that when you even bring up the topic of UFOs, you're already now in a sandbox. It's very polluted. There's a tremendous amount of 
misinformation out there. There's a tremendous amount of mythology out there. What you end up running into is this, this situation where you come to, to think that maybe people don't want to know the truth about this. That And especially here in the States, it seems like in so many levels, we're in so many different uh, uh, stages of denial about so many aspects of who we are as a nation. I know that this is where some of our listeners will now write saying, please keep your political thoughts out of this. But the bottom line is that, you know, the minute you have more than two humans in a room, you've got politics. That's just where oh, it's exactly. at. Sure. It's the human condition. Um, you know, with, with this topic, what happens is that you basically, it, 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 you have people who basically are either preaching to the choir you know, our listeners tend to identify with what we're saying because they have sort of hit the wall with what other people are coming into this with, you know, where it's like, ooh, disclosure, ooh, the Space Brothers, ooh, helping us evolve, um, where that's one mindset about the UFO topic, where people basically, and I'm, I know I'm repeating myself on this show, but that's sort of what happens when we have these discussions, people are using the UFO topic as a proxy religion. It's basically a substitute for religion. Yeah, that's um, right. Right. And and you don't know how much of that is just spontaneous, you know, <laughs> springing right. from the general confusion of humanity or or to what extent it's being uh, orchestrated. All we know, though, is that, you know, the, the government has basically said via the Robertson panel that their mission was to keep uh, UFO reports out of the newspapers. They wanted to suppress the topic. So I have to believe that a, a certain amount of this, not not all of it, certainly, but a certain amount of it, does is traceable back to uh, this um, this decision on the part of the government to to try to try to suppress the topic, and you don't see any real change in the way the media is reporting this. They haven't suddenly become more astute. I mean, there's any any good uh, beginning journalist could go out and research and write a pretty good article about the UFO topic just based on the you know the top ten books that have been written or whatever. Uh, but suddenly, you know, so, or somehow the, the major newspapers can't seem to do that. I mean, they can't even put together a, uh, a halfway uh, unbiased or objective article about it. It's gone gone beyond that. You can't even have investigative journalism anymore because those departments are the first to be cut. Investigative journalists aren't always the ones to generate the profit. You know, what yeah. generates the profit these days? Well, Tiger Woods. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox, but most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
We have Terry Hansen, author of The Missing Times, exploring the UFO cover-up. And maybe in the last 35 minutes or so, we could look at solutions, because we certainly have spent well over an hour and a half talking about the problems. So is there a solution? How do we solve this problem? How do we get UFO research back on track? How do we find out what, if anything, the government knows? Terry, tell us how to do this. You must tell us how to do this. We need to know now. Let's look at solution <laughs> avenues. In five minutes. <laughs> In fact, 30 35. seconds. We need, of course, the Reader's Digest version. Well, I think there are um, a few a few things that are, that are useful to know. Um, I would say... Uh, First of all, that if you, anyone who reads uh, Richard Dolan's two-volume two set of UFOs and the National Security, I think, or maybe Tim, Timothy Good's, some of Timothy Good's better books, or, you know, there's a number of fairly well-known books about the UFO subject, has to at least entertain the possibility that there are other intelligences involved with us right now. I mean, I think it's pretty hard to explain all this activity, this UFO activity, without coming to the conclusion that there's somebody else other than human human beings here. So that's the first step. And at that point then if you if you start reflecting on the various interest groups that would you know that would be affected by that realization, um, certain things start to fall into place. I mean we know that there's something called the black budget, which the government has which has been growing steadily since since uh, the Atomic Energy Commission was set up. And uh, given that there's a, an obvious connection between UFOs and nuclear weapons, it's very likely that a lot of the people in Los Alamos and places like that changed the focus of their research to uh, anti-gravity or UFOs or something of that nature, something related to how these flying saucers work. Will the government ever open up and acknowledge all this? I'm pretty skeptical about it, and I think the reason is that it would be you know, just an incredibly major scandal if they ever did, because they would have to admit that for one, you know, one thing they've they've lied about it for 50 years that they've been siphoning off billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in a clandestine research. You know, there there are no winners in that scenario from the point of view of a politician. So I don't I don't expect that that's going to happen. But you know, if you just get to the point where you know the government has an incentive to lie to us, and that they do it regularly. Uh, that's a good start. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there who haven't gotten to that point and that they tend to believe everything the government says about UFOs and other, uh, other uh, marginal topics. So skepticism. But isn't is, uh, that strange, though? It's the strange dichotomy. We don't believe the government. We don't believe the Democrats. We don't believe the president even. We don't believe the Republicans. We don't believe them about health care, about taxes, about the deficit. But we believe them when they say UFOs aren't real. Yeah. Well, it is strange. I got two yeah. words for you guys. Cognitive dissonance. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> okay, it's been nice knowing you, David. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be provincial next time. Um, well, that's what's fascinating about the 9-11 debate is that you have, you have basically two competing conspiracy theories or maybe, maybe three con competing conspiracy theories. I was going to say, definitely more than two. Yeah. <laughs> Even the people who support the government are basically conspiracy theorists. 
So that's maybe we're making some progress here in, re- in recognizing that the world is is a hive of conspiracies. <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of interlocking conspiracies at work at any given time. And a conspiracy is just a couple of people getting together to try to control events. Absolutely. And if, if conspiracies right. didn't happen, we wouldn't need the FBI. We wouldn't need the police force. You know, I mean, that's what criminal activity is about. It's, you know, trying to control things clandestinely in an illegal fashion. Well, that's what corporate, I mean, one could make an argument that today that's what the business of being a corporation is about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a great um, documentary called The Corporation. I'm sure you've heard of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they they basically say that corporations are just giant, soulless machines that are dedicated to making money, and they, they, they don't care about people or the impact of what they do. They're just grinding away you know they're... right but 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 you have to finish that with and what is what's presented in the corporation is that they are exactly what you've described except at a certain point in history they were given the kinds of rights that are typically reserved yeah. for people for individuals sure so well I, you know i voted for ralph nader in the last well at least two two elections in a row i've kind of forgotten which ones but um and I think Nader has his finger on the pulse here, you know, that the corporations have so much power in the United States. They've, they've taken over the U.S. government from the inside. I mean, Elizabeth Warren was on TV the other day talking about the economy, and she said, you know, they get really upset when, when they hear what I say on television, but they've got a thousand lobbyists out there <laughs> countering everything I say and do. You know, how, how can they be worried about one person speaking out about about the economy? I mean, they're, 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 you know, the game is stacked in their favor and unless we can somehow change that law you know and and take away their their legal status as persons or at least make them responsible for what what they do you know like if a corporation breaks the law they should get the death penalty they should be broken up and scattered to the wind and give the money to their various stockholders you know Uh, there should be penalties for what they do you're absolutely right, and you're not going to get any kind of dissent from us. But, of course, the, the problem, Terry, is that it seems like that ship has sailed. And, and, and in fact, one could, I think, very easily make an argument. This is the history of humanity. Basically, uh, money is power and everything else is nonsense. And basically, whoever's got the money has got the power. And to try to bring down, this is such an entrenched thing in human history that to try to counter that, it's almost as if it were a fool's folly. You, sure. you really can't. Well, it would take it would take a very uh, concerted grassroots uh, uprising, I think, to force the government to become more transparent and count- accountable. I think that's what needs to be done, and I, I, I guess I harbor a, a, some uh, hope that it might eventually happen, but I... I agree that the things don't look very good right now. I mean, actually, we left the United States and moved to Canada because we could see a lot of the things that were happening, and it didn't look too good. And I know quite a few people who've done the same. Uh, I think the smart people are getting out and moving to another part of the world because they just sense that the whole system is coming down. Well, but see, at that point, and that's really interesting that you say that, um, do you think, though, that because we have a global economy, if if something radical were to happen in the states, if there were to be if there were to be, let's say, that banking collapse that was supposed to have happened, that TARP supposedly 
uh, held off, which I don't buy a word of any of that. If that collapse were to happen, we're, would you be able to be safe anywhere in the world at that point? What do you think? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, a lot of people say, you know, if you really get down to it, you, you're safe if you can grow your own food and you've got a, a roof and some water to drink. You know, that's right. It's about the only um, security you can have in a world that's that's increasingly seems to be run by criminal cabals of one kind or another that are just looting the country for their own uh, uh, narrow interests. You know, it's a bad scenario. I mean, civilizations do collapse, and we may we may be next in line. If we don't start uh, taking our, you know, I mean, that's why I wrote the book really was to try to expose some of these things and try to get people thinking about transparent government and, and the need for accountability. Where, where are our tax dollars going? What are they being used for? What are these black budget programs all about? Are people siphoning off the money to Swiss bank accounts or are they, do they actually, uh, are they doing something useful with it? Well, if they're doing something useful for the black budget, maybe it would help. But peering behind the veil of secrecy for UFOs, are we seeing any indications of what the government really knows, or do they know nothing? Well, my sense is that they do know quite a bit. And um, I I say that because they spend so much money on intelligence gathering of all kinds, and they have the apparatus to track everything that goes on in the atmosphere. Um, I think that they probably started setting this intelligence gathering apparatus up uh, fairly early on and they they know quite a bit by now but um, I don't think they're going to disclose what they know to us if they can get around it so I'm not I'm not optimistic that they're going to voluntarily come clean because there there's so many skeletons that are going to come out of that closet and it's uh, it's a political nightmare I mean they they've kind of painted themselves into a corner and and they're stuck well, when we speak to com- about complicity here, and we talk about the press working in concert with the government to hide the truth about UFOs, so it goes to follow that if UFOs are real, there's some kind of intelligence behind them. Is the government involved in some kind of conspiracy involving interaction with aliens? Is there any evidence of that other than just claims? Well, when I look at uh, when when I read these reports from the 1950s, particularly the airline pilots' reports, what seems to me is that the UFOs uh, were were making their presence known in no uncertain terms. In other words, I've had pilots tell me that this thing flew alongside me for 15 minutes. It was demonstrating in a clear, unambiguous way, we are here. So um, uh, a number of people have have said that there was some kind of contact that took place back in the 50s and that perhaps there, out of that contact grew some kind of collusion um, between the aliens, one or more groups, and, and the government. I don't, you know, as crazy as that may sound to some people, I wouldn't dismiss that possibility. I mean, that, that could very well be going on. Um, I hope they have our interests in mind, <laughs> and I don't know. Well, why would they? They probably have their own interests in mind, right. if, if they're anything right. like us. You know, it's conceivable that one of the reasons the government can't come clean about all this is that, you know, the aliens don't basically want them to. Well, uh, that's they, something... They, yeah, that's something we've maintained on the show, that if disclosure were ever to happen, it would not be initiated on the human side. We are not yeah. the dominant position in all of this. Right, but at the same time, they continue to demonstrate their presence. You know, you continue to have things like the Hudson Valley sightings and the, the Triangular sightings in Belgium. And, you know, there's these public displays that they're here. 
which is sort of curious. Well, let me give you another way to interpret that. I understand what you're saying, Terry, but, but check this out. What if it's just a situation where they're doing what they're doing and we're ants? It's like we're yeah. doing what they're doing and, oh, gee, the humans see us, so what? It's not like the humans can actually do anything to stop us. It's not like they, right. they can they can't take us out of the sky. Yeah. Um, we can outmaneuver them. So we're just going to do what we do with impunity because it doesn't really matter what the humans think. And, and this is always difficult for, for us to understand because, of course, we're the center of the universe. We're <laughs> God's children. And right. we are the are the highest and mightiest. And, and, and sure, it's great for us to think that. But if you had a, a civilization that was a few tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even million years older, I'm guessing uh, they have a bigger superiority complex than we do. Oh, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think what, what we're dealing with is not one uh, civilization. That there, there probably are hundreds, if not thousands, of technological civilizations in our galaxy alone, and that's based on theoretical studies that have been done by scientists. So I think that's the, the safest assumption, and some of them are probably so far advanced we can't, we'll never understand what they're doing. Well, of but course, there are the are. other theories that really the UFO entities, at least some of them, are part of another race that coexists with us, and that's yeah. why they're so concerned about the fate of the planet, about global warming, about yeah. weapons testing, etc. Well, sure. I mean, some of them, the ones that are monitoring the nu nuclear activity, obviously have an interest in what we're doing, whatever reason. It might be selfish in a selfish interest rather than an altruistic uh, interest, but they're clearly monitoring what we're up to. And I, I sort of compare it to if you lived in a next to a, a forest and you suddenly discovered to your amazement that the, the chimpanzees next door uh, had developed uh, hand grenades, you'd be pretty interested in that, I think. <laughs> So, you know, that basically what we did were these apes that have just come down out of the trees, and we've got nuclear weapons, and we're starting to go out into space. And, you know, I mean, that's uh, a little alarming probably, particularly when you see what we've been using our technologies for, which is slaughtering each other by the, the millions. Well, at least it reduces the population explosion. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Terry Hansen, author of The Missing Times, exploring UFO, government cover-ups. Before the break, did you say something about it shows that we're actively reducing the population? 
<laughs> about kind wars. Sicko, I mean, okay, no, no. well, there's two different ways to reduce the population. One is I by see, birth so control, you, and the right. other might be by just having a war. Wait, so human brutality is something that's bred by the earth in order for us to control our own population. No, actually, I suspect that human brutality is just simply this base part of our of our behavior that we can't escape because in the end, we are animals. You know what, we Even should look at another thing here about the way the government participates in things. Now, in an interview we had with Nick Redfern, author of the book about contactees, he was suggesting government involvement in some of these contact cases. We have, of course, where Orfeo Angelucci actually took some kind of apparent psychedelic drug at the hands of a possible military personage. We have Howard Menger, one of the classic contactees, who said he was part of a government experiment. So do you think that the government has staged certain UFO events, contacts, sightings, etc., for their own purposes? Well, it's certainly possible. I mean, one of the scenarios that I think the Pentagon has a lot of different scenarios for manipulating the public, and one of them is... Uh, you know, conceivably, they, they may um, try to use the UFO phenomenon as a way of frightening the wits out of people so that they, uh, you know, band together or, or so that they can be herded in one direction or another. I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, you know, if you know about Project Northwoods and 9-11 and some of the other suspicious things that have gone on, I think they, they probably don't have too many scruples about what they what they might try to do. I don't I don't trust that the military has our best interests in mind. I think it's a conglomeration of corporations that are making huge amounts of money uh, on weapons manufacturing. Yeah, we're back to Eisenhower's infamous warning. Yeah. Yeah, we keep coming back to that over and over again, and that certainly seems borne out by, if you stop today and look at the size of the defense budget in the United States, it's an insane, it, it is literally an insane number. Oh, yeah. It, and, you know, we're, the, yeah. the government is essentially broke as it is, and yet we're engaged in this evidently endless war in Asia that's, you know, projected to go on indefinitely, draining lifeblood out of the country. I mean, it's just nuts. It's uh, it's scary. Yeah. Because there are precedents in history for this that people don't want to hear. And we're back to the American state of denial, except the problem, of course, being that it's my belief that we don't live in a world of nation states anymore. I just don't buy that anymore. We, we, we live in an interconnected world, and, and the problem is, I, I, I think, and I could be, I'd love to be, man, would I love to be wrong about this? <laughs> Nothing would give me greater satisfaction than to be wrong about the idea that if the United States were to start a domino effect, if we go down, this empire falls the problem is we are so interconnected as, as as a planet that the repercussions of that, I don't know that we could even, on an optical, a holographic core computer, model that. My friends in Argentina have said to me, hey, you know, if you guys go under, it's going to kill us down here, and we're pretty far away from you, and it's going to bring us down as well. You know, you guys fall. It's like, talk about the corporation that's too big to fail. At the same time, we're completely leveraged out. I mean, and again, this is part of the American psyche that people don't want to know this. But, you know, essentially, uh, and, and I've said this in another venue, to put it into, into, into context so that people understand that, hey, take every tax dollar you've ever paid in your whole life. Take every tax dollar that everybody you know has ever paid in their whole lives, and it just got burned last week in Iraq. And that's, that was true years ago. It's true now. 
and there's no sign of the stopping. So the question is, I mean, at that point, one has to say, well, you know, what is the real A, what's the real value of money? B, what does it really represent? And C, you know, is it a situation where it's all contrived anyway and the debt reaches a certain amount and people just like write it off? But the problem being that the debt is owed to these other countries. Somehow, I find it hard to believe that the Chinese are going to write us right off our debt to make us feel better about ourselves. I, I don't. I don't see that happening. So yeah. you have this problem, and and it seems to you know coming back to the topic of the discussion, uh, we live in denial about so many things, even the veracity of our own media at this point and the messages they give us. That it's almost as if you're in a maze that that has no end. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, there's a saying in journalism. I'm sure you've heard it. Follow the money. And if you can't follow the money, if, if the government is arranged in such a way that there is no accountability, no traceability for funds, you know, it's over. I mean, the game is over. You know, I mean, we're just going to fall apart as a society because uh, nobody has any way of finding out what's going on anymore. We're just a wilderness of mirrors. Yeah, where you have some section, and again, not to turn this into a conspiracy theory episode, but gravity sort of pulling us that way. You have some chunk of people who are obviously making money on all of this, who are basically profiting. And at this point, it's not hard to figure out who those people are. I'll give you a hint. Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, it's the average employee benefit it averaged out over the company for this year is something like seven hundred and forty-two thousand dollars each. That's the bonus yeah. for every employee. And, and again, I realize that's kind of averaged out over everybody, but you see those kinds of numbers, and you think to yourself, "Well, gee, there's theft going on here. There's yeah. improprieties going on here," and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Yeah, I read some somewhere, I think it was on Bloomberg News, that the people at Goldman Sachs are starting to carry sidearms because they're worried about, you know, public just kind of rising up and, and bumping these people off. And, well, you know, that's a legitimate concern when society starts to fall apart. You know, I mean, even the big shots are not going to be safe. I've already read, it's funny, I reported on that on another show I do that's got a political bent. And I've already read since then reports that basically state that those claims are exaggerated. Yeah, well, they uh, might be. Right. So, But then I've already read yet other reports coming on the heels of those saying that, well, you have to see in what states they're registering these arms and what yeah. games they're potentially playing. So, again, you're back to this problem where something pops up, you hit the, you do the whack-a-mole, and it starts coming up all over the place. <laughs> and so now you've got, you've got to figure out some method for sifting through this, and uh, I just have the recognition that for the vast majority of people who are concerned about paying their mortgages, about raising their kids, about putting food on the table, basically people are so caught up in the game of survival that they simply do not have the energy, the will to pursue any of this because essentially you've got a situation where people are selfish. Basically, they just really worry about the little bubble that extends around them and theirs. And as long as that bubble is comfortable, then the rest of the world can be going to hell in a handbasket, and they're not going to really care. And and here we are now in a time where you've got this extreme expression of this. You've got kids immersing themselves in their video games. They don't go outside anymore. They're basically just living in these virtual worlds. And as long as they have enough stimulation in those virtual worlds, they're content to just be there. And yeah, and, and what's what's a little disturbing about that is that a lot of what they do is shooting at shoot at people and blow things up. Oh yeah, 
So if it ever breaks out into the real world from the virtual world, it's not going to be a pretty scene. And there again, you can play the game of, I know that when I was growing up as a kid in New Jersey, I was fascinated with playing war. I had plastic gun toys. Me and my friends would go out and we would stage mock battles. I think what was effectively happening is what happens with all humans. I mean, basically, this is like human nature. And hopefully, if you're a kid, you can get it out of your system so it doesn't <laughs> doesn't leach over into adulthood where now you're an adult looking at, you know, buying weapons systems and new types of stealth bombers. I sometimes think that these military generals are, are often the kids that didn't play war when they were kids. Now they're adults and they're playing war, except they got way better toys. Yeah. <laughs> Not a comfortable thought, by the way, and I'd like to be wrong about that yet again. When it comes down to Terry, I mean, do, do you do you hold out any hope in our lifetimes for us getting any closer to understanding what is going on with this? Is there some way that we as independent media can have a positive effect on revealing the truth, on peeling away the layers of the onion? Well, uh, I come back to the point that I made earlier and that there is a tremendous amount of very well-documented information on this topic already that we don't, we don't really have to wait for the government to tell us that there are other intelligences here to reach that conclusion. There's a tremendous amount of evidence that that's the case. So in a sense, uh, regardless of what officialdom tells us, we know the UFO phenomenon is real and uh, that we live in a universe that's populated by beings other than just humans. That itself is is a step forward in terms of our conception of of reality and, and human, the place of humanity and the grand scheme of things. Now, I remember years ago I interviewed a guy named James McCampbell. I talked about this very subject, and he said, some people will never know. Some people will never figure it out. They'll always be in the dark, but it's going to be a gradual evolutionary process. That's just the way uh, science goes. You know, it takes... It takes a long time to figure even fairly basic things out. Human beings, there's a lot of mm-hmm. confusion and struggle and argument, and this is not a unique situation. In the early part of the 20th century, most astronomers couldn't agree on what these fuzzy objects were in the sky. They thought Some of them thought they were all inside our galaxy. Some of them thought they were outside the galaxy. Today we know that there's all sorts of phenomena that are called, you know, go with, go with the name of Mazier or you know, nebula, nebular objects. Some of them are galaxies that are unbelievably far away, and some of them are clouds of gas within our galaxy, and some are exploding stars. And so, you know, we're just starting to resolve this information gradually. And I think we are gaining insight, but we're still struggling with a tremendously complex problem. You know, Einstein said we'll never understand it all, and that's probably true of us. It'll, we've got our work cut out for us, and it's going to be a problem that's going to occupy inquiring minds for probably many generations to come. We only have a few moments left, Terry. Maybe we could look at your inquiring mind. You're working on a second book. You're telling us where are you going to cover the subject from this vantage point, having done book one, looking into a book two? Well, I'm trying to think about about the consequences of an open society. And if, we, if somehow, through some miracle or you know, some, some series of events, we were able to return to a situation where we could find out uh, what the black budget dollars are going for and that, you know, there were some fundamental new technologies that, that came to light, how those technologies would affect uh, our society. So it's kind of a big, a big question and a little bit nebulous, and I hope to talk to a lot of people about it and, and get their perspectives on it. But it's, it's still very early, and I don't have too much to show for it at this point other than 
a general concept and some few pages. <laughs> so I'm really just getting started on it. Now, having written this book, has the government come to Terry Hansen and said, you know what, we're going to have to put you <laughs> under deep security here? <laughs> well, no, but um, you know, one of the people that uh, reviewed my book was a guy who is a CIA contractor. And he, after he did the review or published the review, uh, he showed up at my house one day and just sort of out of the blue, you know, called me up and said, I'd like to stop in and see you. And, and I've always wondered whether he was there on official business or not, because <laughs> I've heard a similar story from Linda Howe and a few other people. Okay, so, so when he visited you, what did he do? What did he say? Well, I think he was just sounding me out, trying to find out what I knew. And I think he was uh, surprised at what I had written and uh, wanted to know how I figured it out, things like that. Hmm. So. Did you ask him about his intelligence connections? Uh, a little bit, yeah. We talked about that. I'd rather not say who it is, but I mean, I've had contact with other people in the military that seemed interested in me. Let's put it that way. But uh, hmm. you know, the book is out there. I mean, the way I, part of the reason the way I published it. A lot of times when you publish a book on something that is controversial, or you know, the, the publisher can kind of kill the story, or it can kill the book. It can buy the rights and and you're dead in the water. That happened to me with another book. I wrote a totally different type of book. but So that's I, I just went directly to publishing it myself, basically, because I had control of the, the whole process. And I think more and more writers are doing that because publishing companies don't have that much to offer anymore in terms of promotion and so on. They just Or distribution. I mean, yeah. it used to be that the publisher, their basic thing was to get the books on the shelves. Right, exactly. You get your book in Amazon, you know, at that point, yeah. What's the publisher doing for taking the vast bulk of the of the profit? Sure. The other thing about the publishing industry these days is they don't spend money to promote the book. I mean, we get press releases about a lot of books. We don't have enough shows to cover all of them. Some are quite interesting. So right. I occasionally ask a publicist, you know, guys, why don't you advertise in the radio show? We have the audience, a proven audience around the world. Advertise with us, and you can get the word out about books that we can't get the guests on for one reason or another. Oh, no, right. we have no budget. Well, right. how can you sell a book if you don't put money into the process? Not everybody is going to be a phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think publishers are kind of, uh, they're, they're kind of dinosaurs in a way. They're, uh, the times have passed them by. I know Richard Dolan published both of his books um, himself. One of them was picked up by uh, Hampton Roads, but... Uh, Initially, it was self-published, and the second one was self-published. I think he's done quite well. Well, at that point, when you start to look at the metrics of it, you can do really well self-publishing, selling so many fewer books than you would through a major publisher just because of the fact that when you run the numbers, there's no author being paid more than 15% of net. Right. So, you know, when what's net? Well, usually the margin on a book is like anywhere from 44 to 60%. So, you know, the $20 book, subtract half of that already goes, is right off the top, is gone. And then you get 15% of what's left. So, uh, you know, if, if you sell the book yourself and you, and you basically are the distributor, you know, whatever money, like if you give Amazon, I think Amazon takes like a 44% margin, but then you keep uh, the remaining 56% is yours. Sure. You know, um, the problem, of course, with that, and this is we're not going to turn this into the publishing episode of the Paracast, but of course, the problem, what, what publishers typically did was to take on the risk ahead of time. 
And that's what they would do. They would take on the risk. And so, um, you know, you could get a book into a publisher's hand. They would put it on the shelves. They would take a risk on you because that's how publishing worked. They would also put money into special displays, end caps, where you pay extra money, basically bribe the store to give your book better placement. We only have about a minute and a half left, Terry. Give our listeners a one-minute summary, if you can, about this book and why they need to have a copy. Okay, well, I think one of the long questions in the UFO field is what, you know, why did UFOs go from becoming a a front page story uh, that was covered by all the major newspapers and magazines and radio shows in America to becoming a fringe phenomenon? Uh, If you want to understand the answer to that question, that's basically what what my book will tell you, and I think you'll get a lot of insight into how the media work and and how the government and the media work together. Terry Hansen, he's author of the book called The Missing Times. It doesn't matter that he paid to publish it. It only means that when you buy a copy, more of the money you spend goes into his pocket and helps him fund his research, pay the bills, whatever. He has a site called themissingtimes.com. That's themissingtimes.com. And as always, we have links to everything over at theparacast.com. Terry Hansen, thank you so much for sharing your words of wisdom this week on the Paracast. Okay, thanks, uh, David and Gene. Glad to be on the show. Thanks, Terry. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.